0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. I'm John McMahon, PhD candidate in political theory at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and one of the hosts of the channel. I'm also a fellow at the Center for Global Ethics and Politics, which sponsors the podcast and is part of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center. Today, I'm speaking with Ten Gundodu, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Barnard College, Columbia University, about her new book, Rightlessness in an Age of Rights. Hannah Arendt and the Contemporary Struggle of Migrants from Oxford University Press in 2015. And really, it's one book, but it's kind of three excellent books in one, all of which would have been um, quite good on their own. But somehow she is able to pull this off all in one really fascinating, very engaging and very critical volume. Um, on, the, on one hand, it's a book that's a... Generative and careful and creative and critical reading of Hannah Arendt. On a second hand, it's a thoughtful grappling with the precarious conditions of migrants in a contemporary situation. And I suppose on a third hand, um, it's also a critique of human rights, not just kind of a gap between principle and implementation, but an investigation into the perplexities of the human rights framework itself. Now, in this course of this book, um, Gundodu engages a number of different issues, including uh, important concepts in Arendt's thought, rethinking her notion of rightlessness, her critique of human rights, uh, the relationship between the political and the social realms, the relationship between labor, work, and action, the vita activa, the notion of personhood, and the idea of a right to have rights, all um, controversial in some ways, Parts or dimensions of Arendt's thought and all rethinkings of Arendt that are responsive to the situation that Gundodu describes with contemporary migrants. And this is really, I think, kind of illustrative of the method that she's engaged in throughout the book, which is not only to uh, rethink Arendt or definitely not to apply Arendt to the struggles, the con- political actions that contemporary migrants face and are part of but also to use an exploration into the political situation of migrants to rethink Arendt herself. And in doing so, not only is Gundodu giving us a new framework for understanding the precarious conditions that migrants are often in around the world, but it's also a way to rethink our relationship to an evaluation of Hannah Arendt and important concepts in her thought. Uh, I I think it's clear this is a very um, excellent book. I encourage you all to read it. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm now joined by Iten Gundodu, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Barnard College, Columbia University. She's the author of Rightlessness in an Age of Rights Hannah Arendt and the Contemporary Struggles of Migrants, out from Oxford University Press in 2015. Iten, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Global Ethics and Politics.
1: Thank you very much uh, for inviting me, John. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Me too. I mean, I I absolutely loved reading this book. And I mean, I would urge listeners to go out and read it themselves. And I think kind of one of the things that was most impressive to me about it was that it's kind of an impressive, it's impressively two books at once. And then it's Mm -hmm. a really kind of thoughtful, critical rereading of Arendt. And at the same time, it's a very um, kind of, incisive analysis of contemporary struggles of migrants. So given that it's kind of an impressive way that you brought those two together, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your own background and how you came to write this particular book.
1: Thanks, first of all, for that compliment. It's uh, very nice to hear that I was able to do at least a little bit of what I aimed to do when I first started the project. Um, and we will talk more about both of those dimensions. Um, to talk about my academic background uh, very briefly. Um, I was born and raised in Istanbul, Turkey. I had my undergraduate education uh, at Boğaziçi University in Istanbul. And I was actually, I majored in translation and interpreting. So I had nothing to do with political science for a long time. And then I ended up taking quite um, a lot of political science courses, and then decided to have a PhD in political science and applied to grad school, and got admitted to the University of Minnesota, and um, I basically uh, started my PhD there in 2001. So if you think about that date, basically I arrived in the US just a few weeks before 9/11, um, and that. I think that background, that uh, historical, political context was very much important to the formation of my thinking, to the questions that I ended up posing, and perhaps as important as the academic formation that I received at the University of Minnesota. It was a time when we saw increasing securitization of questions related to immigration and borders. Uh, It was the time to ask those questions in academic work. Um, And I was uh, at the right place to ask those questions. And I say that because the University of Minnesota was, and it it still is, um, a great place for approaching uh, problems of world politics in a critical manner. And it does that in a very interesting way by encouraging dialogue between two subfields, political theory and international relations, that are often not (laughs) talked together. Um, And that has become especially the case because the subfield of international relations, especially in the U.S., has become more and more quantitative Mm -hmm. over the years, which makes it very difficult to have a meaningful conversation with uh, theorists who adopt interpretive methods but it was that kind of dialogue that was encouraged there um, and it was also a place where different forms of critical theory uh, were thought taught and so you uh, i was exposed to various forms of critical theory including um post-structuralism post-marxism feminist theory postcolonial theory uh, which would be difficult to encounter even at other institutions where contemporary and continental political theory might have been uh, strong. Uh, so within that uh, intellectual atmosphere, it became uh, easier for me to ask questions about world politics in a critical manner, how a world order is produced um, in ways creating hierarchies inequalities and with various forms of violence, uh, especially. So that's the broader intellectual atmosphere. I guess that is uh, in the background of this book.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I certainly think it, um, accomplishes the connections that it sounds like you're interested in between political theory and critical theory, um, in a wide number of, uh, ways at the same time that it's engaging issues of world politics. Um, and one of the ways it does that is, and this is kind of perhaps a way to get into the book itself, I was wondering if you could maybe unpack for the listeners a bit the term rightlessness mm-hmm. um, as it's at work in the thought of Arendt and the connection between rightlessness and statelessness for her. Mm-hmm.
1: So I forgot to mention, as I was talking about that intellectual formation, uh, the significance of Arendt. I actually did not encounter Arendt until I arrived in the U.S. Um, I uh, encountered Arendt's work uh, in various courses at the University of Minnesota, and then I ended up working with uh, Mary Deeds, who is a scholar um, of uh, Arendt, and... um, that's one of the reasons perhaps you know, I turned to Arendt as um, and the key thinker uh, as I was engaging with questions related to immigration and borders and citizenship and sovereignty. So um, to go back to your question about rightlessness, that became a key term for me as I was uh, looking at these significant problems that various categories of migrants face. As they try to claim and exercise rights. Um, and um, I have in mind here, and we can maybe talk about it a little bit more, especially the most vulnerable categories of migrants, asylum seekers, refugees, and undocumented immigrants. Um, as they are detained, for example, or as they are put in camps, um, the, the significant problems, the systemic problems that they encounter became important to me. And Arendt's notion of rightlessness uh, became uh, an important way to understand these problems, a helpful resource for me to understand these resources. Um, But it was somewhat uh, perhaps neglected in Mm -hmm. the scholarship in the sense that there was a lot of debate on the right to have rights. People loved talking about Mm -hmm. the right to have rights. When we look at the origins of totalitarianism, actually... um, the discussion of the right to have rights is surprisingly very short, given how much (laughs) academic debate it created. (laughs) And it is the right uh, that Arendt introduces in order to rethink human rights in a new way in response to the problem of rightlessness that the stateless people face during the interwar era. So we, we had to talk about the problem first of all, I thought, in order to be able to understand how we can think about the right to have rights today. So rightlessness for her is a condition that can even undermine the specific rights that individuals have. And she, she basically says that, look, what I'm talking about is not specific rights violations. Even citizens might have those, right? In a state of emergency, you might be denied your certain rights as a citizen, but you don't find yourself in this condition of rightlessness that the stateless people find themselves in. And that is the condition, according to her, that is created by the loss of polity, loss of your membership in a political community that could guarantee you rights. So, um, that's uh, the meaning that she gives in The Origins of Totalitarianism. And she, her analysis highlights the various dimensions of rightlessness. And the uh, ones that I ended up highlighting in the book are the, uh, the legal, political, and um, uh, maybe what we might call human or existential mm-hmm. dimensions, right? The legal dimension is loss of legal personhood. Uh, which basically leaves the stateless people vulnerable to various forms of arbitrary violence and police rule. Um, The political dimension dimension lies in the loss of a political community, uh, as uh, I, I mentioned, a political community in which your actions, opinions, and speech are taken into account. And then once you lose this legal and political standing, Um, it becomes very difficult for you to be recognized as a human being sharing the world with other human beings and being recognized as a human being entitled to rights. So that's the problem that is um, at the heart of the book. And I think this is a term, rightlessness is a term that can help us understand the multiple interrelated dimensions of the problems that asylum seekers, refugees, and undocumented immigrants encounter today as they try to make claims to human rights.
0: Right. That's very helpful. And I mean, it seems to me that that term or that concept, I should say, is thus one of the reasons that Arendt is a particularly important critic of human rights that enables you to get into these um, problems and conditions that migrants face. And so if that's one aspect, it seems to me another aspect that makes Arendt's analysis of human rights Unique for you is the method she adopts in her Mm -hmm. critique, or perhaps in in critique more broadly. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you could maybe explain um, the concept you develop of Arendt's aporetic method.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So she basically, when she's looking at the statelessness of interwar era and trying to understand basically why these people found themselves in a condition of rightlessness, uh, she suggests that we should not basically treat this as some kind of anomaly or unfortunate exception to the rule, right? She basically suggests that we actually have to take this problem as a symptom of some of the deeply embedded problems in the organizing principles of the international system. And it takes her to a critical analysis of the nation state and human rights and the relationship between the two. Um, The section in which she discusses this problem is titled, basically, The Perplexities of the Rights of Man. So she provides us with an analysis of these perplexities. And I checked the German version, which she herself translated, uh, actually. And she uses the term, the Aporian der Menschenrechte, as a translation of this. So the term she chose for perplexity was Aporia. Um, And that started, uh, uh, that basically uh, gave rise to some questions uh, in my own thinking. Uh, Why was she using the term perplexity? Uh, And how was she using this term? And what did it mean in terms of understanding how this critique of human rights proceeds and what kinds of conclusions it arises at? And how... Uh, maybe her approach is very different from some of the other criticisms that have been articulated in the past, as well as now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the idea. And what I see uh, different uh, is basically uh, her understanding of perplexity and her approach to perplexity. Because when you look at history, uh, you see so many uh, theorists who were interested in, you know, the paradoxes of human rights Mm -hmm. or paradoxes of the rights of man. We can think of, for instance, Jeremy Bentham, who thought that they were just nonsense (laughs) upon stilts. And he thought that they had these logical inconsistencies. He has this fascinating analysis of the different versions of the Declaration of the Rights of Man. And he basically says, look, look at these logical inconsistencies. This is pure nonsense, you know, and it's a dangerous nonsense. It's anarchical. It's terroristic language. Um, But for Rand, when she says perplexity, she doesn't have this kind of logical inconsistency in mind. It is basically genuine political and ethical dilemmas uh, that human rights give rise to in a system of nation states. And one of the most prominent one is basically uh, these rights are supposed to be inherent, inalienable rights that we all have by birth as human beings, right? But the problem of statelessness reveals us that they are actually dependent on membership in a political community. Within the context of the nation state, that political community uh, uh, being the nation-state, the rights of men turn out to be the rights of citizens defined as nationals on the basis of racial and ethnic criteria. So that's uh, the perplexity at the heart of her analysis. Um, and I basically uh, suggest in the book that, uh, you know, to understand how her critique of these perplexities proceeds we should turn to her writings on Socrates. Socrates does not appear in her discussion of statelessness Mm -hmm. at all. Uh, She turns to Socrates uh, later uh, in her career as she's thinking about uh, thinking, especially the problem of thinking, especially after Ackerman trial, uh, the problem of non-thinking or unthinking. um, And um, then she turns to Socrates and she's fascinated by this figure who embodies, who represents a worldly form of thinking. And what Socrates does is that basically um, he takes an ordinary concept uh, of our everyday vocabulary and inquires into the perplexities uh, that that concept, our common assumptions about that concept, gives rise to. Um, and these are not uh, according to Arendt's reading. Of course, there are different people, you know, uh, interpreting Socrates very differently. And some people find him very, very annoying, <laughs> perhaps rightly so. But according to Arendt's reading, um, Socrates uh, basically is genuinely puzzled by these dilemmas. These are genuine political and ethical dilemmas. And I tried to basically say that something similar can be said about what Arendt is doing with human rights. She's taking a concept of everyday vocabulary, looking at uh, the perplexities that our common assumptions about this concept gives rise to, whether these are natural rights or they are (laughs) historical rights, right? Um, And then her goal is not to Bunk those assumptions altogether, just like Socrates, she's trying to find out what might actually be truthful also in these opinions. So it's different from Plato. Socrates, uh, according to her, is a a thinker um, that actually values opinions and trying to find not only what has become questionable in those assumptions, but also what remains truthful after that kind of inquiry. So at the end of her uh, critical inquiry, um, I think Arendt basically, as she engages in this kind of aporetic method, uh, an aporetic approach that examines uh, the perplexities of human rights, the common assumptions that we have about them, uh, in order to see what becomes relevant and what becomes questionable in the face of statelessness, she doesn't end up debunking human rights altogether. Right. It's different from perhaps many criticisms that we see in history, but also today mm-hmm. that basically uh, point to the need to think about politics beyond human rights. She actually proposes to rethink human rights. Right. So, and,
0: and it seems like that one of the crucial aspects of this for you is her understanding of human rights or maybe rights uh, for her more specifically um, as something that, as things that are equivocal and contingent. And that's part of kind of the refusal to debunk human rights. You know, here you contrast her with Agamben. Um, So I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit to the importance of um, equivocality and contingency Mm -hmm. in in for our end, but also for you specifically.
1: That's a very good question. It is, uh, so she basically examines these perplexities of human rights. And now she, it's a, it's a very radical questioning of the underlying assumptions of human rights. But uh, the puzzling thing is that it ends with also a radical reformulation of human rights. So how is this even possible? So one way in which it is possible, as I said, is basically she's, uh, perhaps one uh, way to read her critique is this kind of you know, almost Socratic, in- inquiry into the underlying assumptions of human rights in order to rethink them in the face of an emergency uh, posed by statelessness. And um, the other thing that becomes important is precisely what you have been highlighting, right? Basically, as she, uh, uh, she's writing The Origins of Totalitarianism, Arendt grapples with significant historiographical questions. How do we understand an event that is unprecedented? How do we basically uh, give, an un- give? Uh, how do we understand it without uh, basically making it look as if it's inevitable? It logically follows from the history of the nation state, let's say. So I think when she is, uh, when she is uh, giving us a critique of human rights, uh, she looks into the, their perplexities, But the conclusion she draws from that is not that the problem of rightlessness that the stateless people faced was inevitable. Inevitable given these uh, tensions of the nation state or given these uh, perplexities that uh, defined uh, human rights within this system of nation states. Instead, I think... What I ended up doing, what I uh, read in her writing, was that they are contingent. The problem of statelessness uh, is contingent on a set of elements uh, that she discusses in that history. I think it's not surprising that uh, the analysis of statelessness uh, comes at the the very end of the volume Mm -hmm. on imperialism, so the damage that imperialism inflicts on the constitutional state, the European constitutional state, for example, is crucial because she's talking about the boomerang effects of imperialism and how um, the practices that were supposed to be you know, uh, just uh, going to be kept for overseas imperialism were actually then adapted in Europe itself against uh, racial and ethnic minorities, how racism itself uh, gets transformed um, as a result of basically the practice of overseas imperialism. The the structure of the camp, the camp itself, she highlights, was invented uh, in uh, the context of overseas imperialism to contain the so-called undesirable Mm -hmm. elements, and then it gets imported to Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so contingency becomes important for understanding uh, the problem, uh, the, the structural conditions of the problem without basically saying that uh, given these perplexities, given these perplexities of human rights, it was inevitable that we would have rightlessness. There were other elements in the story that uh, there are other elements in the story that she's telling us that are really important for understanding uh, what happens.
0: Right. Thank you. Um, As we kind of move on to discuss chapter two of the book, now I'm going to ask you a question that we could probably spend an hour talking about on its own. Um, So feel free to kind of be as as, um, concise as you want. And you actually do this in an impressive, you know, 15 pages or so in the book. Um, but she tried to rethink the controversial notion in Arendt of the distinction that she makes between the political and the social. Um, so rather than kind of getting into um, the entirety of the debates around that issue, which you cover is very effectively in the book, um, I was wondering maybe if you could uh, walk us through your particular reading on how she's using those terms, not so much as a kind of um, sharp distinction between different realms but talking about the process of politicization.
1: Mm -hmm. So this was one of the obstacles that I had Mm -hmm. to overcome in the book in order to be able to rethink human rights today with Arendt um and she has been a, a think she's a thinker who was criticized for drawing a very sharp distinction as you mentioned between political and social realms or political issues related to freedom versus socioeconomic issues related to labor or poverty um and uh, she is uh, basically seen as a thinker who uh is deeply against the politicization of socioeconomic issues. And her critique of the French Revolution is usually taken as a very uh, important statement that actually shows that kind of split. Uh, she's usually read as saying that the French Revolution was doomed to fail from the very beginning because it ended up politicizing the social question or uh, poverty. So, what I ended up doing is, one, I tried to highlight that, you know, it, and and I tried to do it in other chapters as well. Uh, sometimes we attribute to Arendt uh, a singular position, mm-hmm. um, and uh, what arises from her works is actually a very dynamic form of thinking uh, that not only changes over time in some respects, but it is also... Uh, uh, It's also characterized by its own perplexities, Mm -hmm. uh, we can say. So, uh, yes, there are some statements where basically she seems to be drawing that kind of distinction, but there are also other times when she seems to be uh, very positive about Marx for politicizing poverty, for Mm -hmm. uh, using a language that was able to translate poverty into a political problem. She also... In her uh, human condition, uh, she glorifies the European labor movement. Uh, uh, And so I basically, the way I ended up reading that distinction is basically, it's not a boundary marker between two realms or two different sets of issues uh, and two different sets of actors, but instead it is how we approach problems uh, such as poverty. Uh, Right, Uh, And these are important problems, given that in human rights, too, there is a tendency to draw a strict distinction between civil and political Mm -hmm. rights versus social, economic, and cultural rights. And I was trying to go against that distinction, and I was trying to see if we can actually uh, use Arendt's political theory to do that. And I think the conclusion that I ended up drawing from uh, engaging with the perplexities in Arendt's text was basically... Uh, uh, there might be uh, ways of politicizing these issues. Uh, She's not a thinker that is against the politicization of these issues as long as these problems are basically articulated as problems of common concern that relate to how we understand equality and freedom in a political community. That's why she likes... The European labor movement because they were, according to her, not acting narrowly, very narrowly as the trade unions did, sticking to a particular issue and not actually seeing um, how that can be translated into an issue that relates to the political community at large by drawing connections between social justice and political freedom. That's why she likes the labor woman. They were precisely able to make that kind of translation and build those kinds of connections between things that were not seen as related. So this kind of politicization uh, it should be, I think, at the center of our efforts to think about politics of human rights in an Iranian fashion. But what do we do with the social? So I ended up interpreting the social in terms of a set of mechanisms, discourses, um, institutions, and practices that might hinder precisely this kind of politicization that I have been talking about. And in the realm of human rights, we see a troubling convergence between two discourses recently, human rights and humanitarianism. Or we are seeing the humanitarianization of mm-hmm. human rights. Um, and this is not to criticize humanitarianism altogether. There are various actual critical voices within the humanitarianism field itself. But what we are seeing increasingly, and this has become uh, prominent, especially in response to the recent refugee crisis as well, uh, the moralization of suffering, the tendency to see uh, the people who are facing problems of rightlessness as suffering victims who are incapable of ina- enacting their uh, rights, who merely need basic necessities. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Arendt provides us with resources for a powerful critique of what might be wrong uh, with taking compassion as the centerpiece of uh, politics of human rights. And the, one of the uh, conclusions that uh, I make in that chapter, actually that kind of politics uh, can turn into anti-politics very easily in the sense that it can deny political agency to the very subjects that it it, it tries to protect. Mm-hmm. It can uh, deny the singularity of uh, these um Subjects they become a suffering multitude, losing their singularity and agency altogether. And it can actually, according to her, compassion when mobilized, you know, in public to address suffering, it can also become even more crueler than cruelty itself. Mm-hmm. She has a very interesting reading of Melville's Billy Budd, which basically I think can uh, be used, and that's what I ended up doing in the book in a way to think critically about. Um, The mobilizations of compassion in the name of uh, humanitarian interventions, for example. Right now, uh, I have been thinking about that particular section in relation to some of the recent efforts in Europe. To save um, victims, and mm-hmm. that's the language that's right. being used victims of human trafficking and smuggling. Mm-hmm. And NATO ships are supposed to be used for these interventions to stop the boat, to intercept them. And in some of the early documents about these operations, they actually talked about casualties that mm-hmm. might happen. So it basically, uh, this kind of humanitarianism can end up. Um, producing and reproducing the very problem of rightlessness right. that it aims to redress. And I think her conception of the social uh, in on revolution, uh, the social question, her critique of uh, the French revolutionaries approach to poverty can provide us with critical insights into this particular version of humanitarian approach to human rights.
0: Right. And I mean, it seems to me then that the, this chapter, and really the whole book, is, a, is an excellent illustration of what you talk about in both the introduction and conclusion. That this isn't simply a matter of you know applying Arendt to a contemporary problem or a contemporary issue, but taking contemporary issue and seeing how it can enable us to rethink Arendt herself, right? And you know, I I think effectively, I mean, I mean, the way that I understand Arendt has changed a great deal as a result of reading of reading your book. Um, So I think that's really kind of uh, exciting and and effective, um, one of the many dimensions of the book um, that I really enjoyed. And, you know, to kind of maybe pursue this question of the social a little bit further, um, another aspect of it, it seems to me, is concerns about kind of administrative or bureaucratic logics um, that mm-hmm. can arise in, in response to the failure to politicize issues. Um, and so as you term it on page 59, um, you argue that we can kind of mobilize RN for a critique of the, quote, increasing tendency to treat challenging human rights problems as matters of humanitarian administration, mm-hmm to be handled by experts, end quote. Mm And so maybe you could kind of walk us through what an Arendtian critique of that tendency looks like. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, So uh, that's another uh, dimension of her approach to the social that might actually prove to uh, be a good resource for thinking about humanitarianism, especially in relation to refugees and migrants today. Um, And uh, it's uh, this kind of tendency Uh, that she discusses especially in the human condition Mm -hmm. when she's talking about the rise of the social The way she talks about social also changes uh, from book to book. So in The Human Condition, it is the rise of the social. Hannah Pitkin has a wonderful book on Mm -hmm. that one topic, the Mm -hmm. social, right? And in uh, on Revolution, it is the social question. Uh, So in The Human Condition, she's very much worried about this kind of, you know, how life itself, the management of life, the regulation of life becomes... Uh, the center uh, the central focus um, in uh, late modernity um, and uh, and I think that actually bears resemblance to uh, what uh, Foucault uh, discusses in the context of governmentality right. the regulation of life so there might be actually you know ways of reading aren't differently especially in relation to some of the other thinkers who are uh, concerned about uh, similar problems um, so this kind of uh, you know, uh, approach that centers on the management of life, regulation of life, and turns that into an administrative issue that actually, uh, basically, is something to be uh, decided by experts. Um, That. sometimes prevails in humanitarian approaches to the refugee problem as well. Mm -hmm. We see it especially in the administration of refugee camps Um, so we can uh, talk about you know What is wrong with the structure of the camp in the first place? Why we put people in camps in the first Mm -hmm. place? I think uh, that's another question. But once you put people in camps, how, uh, you know, uh, you treat them is another question. And in those situations, you see the rise of this kind of administrative rationality that at times actually, again, works against the interests of the people that it aims to protect. So uh, in uh, one of the, I think, examples that I give in the book, for instance, there is this kind of tension. It is an example that I take from Michel Agier's work on refugees. And it is this conflict, this tension that you see between these women who are basically uh, demanding better shelter conditions because the tents that they are residing in cannot it, are not waterproof and there is rain. Um, and then you have basically uh, the humanitarian administration uh, refusing to uh, deliberate with them as political agents and they force their way through, but there is this kind of resistance mm-hmm. by the administrative um, experts uh, who are... Uh, who have the task of regulating this camp, um, and you see several of those tensions. It's this idea that these are not uh, problems to be deliberated; these are not problems uh, to um, uh, that require discussion, but they are uh, issues to be uh, treated administratively. So when it comes to something like food, right, we can see. Uh, so if we take the very strict distinction between political and social, mm-hmm. uh, if Arendt was making that kind of distinction, that food is not something that could ever be politicized. But in the scope of a camp, we can see how something like food can actually become politicized when people, for instance, don't like the food ration that re- they receive from the UNHCR mm-hmm. and they barter and exchange food to get you know, the food they, that they want. But uh, the administrative rationality, the instrumental expedient administrative rationality comes into play when basically it actually forbids, prohibits this kind of activities from ever taking place. Food is not something to be uh, politicized. Food is not something to be debated or contested, right? You have a specific ra- ration, food ration, decided by an international organization mm-hmm. on the basis of the minimum number of calories that you need mm-hmm. and how we can maintain that. So it's the perfect example of the management of life um, that Arendt was critical as she was talking about the rise of the social and the human condition.
0: Right. And it seems to me kind of the other uh, you know, uh, side of that is what you talk about in chapter four in terms of kind of the loss, not only of political community, but also um, of, of the ability for work and the ability for labor. And so mm-hmm. kind of before we get to the particular kind of uh, conditions in refugee camps and detention centers, um, you are also reinterpreting and Tier in this case on the issue of work and labor and their relationship to politics and the relationship to the Vita Activa uh, more generally. So maybe you could uh, give us an overview of the ways your interpretation of Arendt here um, differs from some of the common readings or common critiques of her um, on the relationship between work, labor, um, and politics. Uh,
1: this is the chapter on, primarily on refugee camps, mm-hmm. fourth chapter, uh, and it centers on A reading of the human condition, which is one of the most well known works of Arendt. And uh, we have come to read this work in a particular fashion. And uh, Arendt is usually taken as a theorist who glorifies action, Uh, basically understands uh, politics in terms of action, and action, according to many of her readers is uh, the uh, most important activity in her analysis of the human condition, Uh, the other activities being work and labor. Of course, uh, she tells us that in the human condition. These are not all the activities that define human Mm -hmm. beings, right? We engage in uh, various other activities, but she selects these as the most politically significant ones. And uh, usually, uh, work, the activity of work, um, is seen as important for action because it is the activity that is uh, important for establishing durable institutions. And within the scope of these durable institutions, human beings are uh, supposed to act and initiate, initiate new beginnings. And uh, labor, which uh, comprises the activities that are necessary for the maintenance of life, Bodily necessities is usually seen as an activity that she despises, mm-hmm. that she sees as an animalistic activity. So it's not properly human, according to many of her readers. Over the years, actually for a very long time, and I'm indebted to these readers. There have been very interesting readings of Arendt. There have been very, very interesting interventions. She has been read as a, a you know, as a theorist who basically loved the ancient Greeks. Uh, especially the Greek polis. And even if that basically meant uh, just uh, favoring the freedom of the privileged few uh, who happened to be uh, these uh, free male Athenians, even at the expense of slaves and women, um, she was taken as a theorist who basically uh, glorified the action of these Greek heroes. And there have been readings to contested uh, that contested that um, Roy Tsa uh, is a very good example. There have been also readings that actually contested the idea that this is basically you know, action is the most important activity. For instance, Petra Markel has uh, mm-hmm. a very insightful article on the significance of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know what is the powerful hold that this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, hierarchical reading uh, has, right? Or the Phil Hellenic reading mm-hmm. has it has a very powerful hold. It becomes very, very difficult for readers to encounter the human condition in a different way, and it, it basically shapes our readings of RN significantly. Mm-hmm. So what I try to do in this one is to, especially in chapter four, is to look at one activity that seemed to be neglected by most readers of RN. That is labor. That is the activity that is taken to be most animalistic. And when I actually looked at the human condition, um, I realized that there are so many positive things (laughs) that she says about labor. (laughs) And for some reason, you know, these are not recognized. For instance, one, she says that this is very important, this kind of activity and it can be anything, right, eating, sleeping, uh, cooking food, all of these activities that we engage in to actually maintain uh, our bodily necessities, our our bodily needs, this is important, she says, for actually uh, experiencing the elemental joy or the sheer bliss of being alive. It immerses uh, us, the human beings, uh, in uh, uh, the earth that we share with other living beings and uh, in addition to that it's not just sheer vitality that it gives us but it also labor uh, these kinds of activities are important for instilling in us uh, a sense of uh, confidence in the reality of life In uh, uh, the regu- it gives us a sense of regularity and familiarity it's, just think about how these activities are important for us to give a sense of ritual, right? Um, habits um, that are so important for living a regular life. But we have not perhaps paid attention to that because we take end as a thinker who is fascinated by extraordinary begin- beginnings. But at the same time, when we look at her discussion of statelessness, when we also look at her writings on uh, the Jewish question, actually... Uh, we realize that she appreciates being able to live an ordinary life. Mm -hmm. It is very, very difficult uh, for people who are forced into these extraordinary lives. One of the examples that she gives in her uh, essay on the refugees is basically how even buying food, buying milk becomes something political, right? And I think you see that in the context of the refugee camps today too, Um, And labor is also important, I I argued, uh, because of its relationship to other activities. Uh, So it helps basically uh, in the maintenance of the world that is created by the activities that she associates with work. And to that extent, it also is an important activity uh, that uh, makes it possible for human beings to become political actors, to act in that world. So that has been uh, the key idea for me. That basically means that once we rethink labor as, a as, as an important activity that allows human beings to be able to lead a life that is recognizably human, mm-hmm. then that basically means that there is actually no hierarchy that we could establish among those activities, labor, work, and action. They are equally important for living a life that could be recognized as human.
0: Right. And then maybe could you perhaps kind of uh, explain both how that rethinking of the relationship between uh, especially labor, work and action um, in our end helps illuminate the conditions in particularly in refugee camps today. And also, again, this is another example of how conditions in refugee camps, it seems to me, illuminate something about our end.
1: Um that's exactly the constant back and forth mm-hmm. I tried to do in the book. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether I would be able to read the human condition in a different way if I wasn't thinking about right. the specific problems mm-hmm. that um, I was reading about the reports on refugee camps. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was that kind of encounter, I think, between Arendt's political theory and what I was reading about, refugee camps, mm-hmm. that made it possible to rethink the human condition in a new way. So in the case of the refugee camps, um, I mean, the camp itself is a, an interesting structure. First of all, it is important th- to think about that structure, yes. right? It is basically, it, it represents physical isolation mm-hmm. from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So you ha- you are a refugee, your condition is thought. Taught to be temporary, right? You uh, the given that we still understand uh, nationality as the norm, we see refugees um, as people who are in this temporary situation. They will have a, ho- they have a homeland to be returned to. Right now, that uh, place might not be safe for them, but within a few years they will go back. So that's the idea. And precisely because we work with the idea of repatriation, they are put in camps. But the camps that are supposed to be these, you know, temporary holding grounds actually turn to be much more permanent than they are anticipated. So you have situations, uh, these protracted refugee situations, which last for decades. And um, the camp, as I said, it's physically isolated, it is also oftentimes, um, especially when it's first started, uh, it's these tents that barely provide uh, shelter. Um, So it is an environment uh, that basically really puts you away from the rest of the world. uh, It expels you from political and human community. And it is also a place where basically uh, the routines of everyday life are interrupted. I mean, when you become a refugee, of course, your uh, everyday routines are interrupted. Mm-hmm. But over time, people establish routines again. But the camp itself does not often allow that kind of uh, uh, routine to be established. Or you establish it and then basically, you uh, Uh, You you try to turn it into a home and then uh, there's a decision, an administrative decision to actually uh, move you somewhere else for uh, whatever purpose that Mm -hmm. they come up with. And uh, so it doesn't allow the type of um, the cultivation of the type of confidence in life that Arendt associates with these laboring activities, for instance, or the elemental joy of uh, uh, the elemental joy that you experience—the sheer bliss of being alive—right—that uh, she associates with laboring activities, precisely because you become uh, completely dependent on compassionate others, even to meet your basic necessities i mean the food ration example is uh again it can be invoked here it's a good example but how you cannot forget about choosing what you're going to eat um, but you know basically even the calories that you are mm-hmm. uh, putting into your body is going to be they are calculated by an external agency and uh, it, it's also you know uh, a place where that is Deprived, especially in its early beginnings, uh, deprived of the many artifacts that she would associate with uh, the work, with work as an activity, mm-hmm. it is uh, basically uh, 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 you are trying to reestablish a world that is populated by these artifacts uh, that uh, can uh, establish uh, a sense of uh, you know um, home. And that becomes very difficult to do as well in the scope of a camp. And it is also a place where uh, the possibilities of action, of initiating something new, are significantly limited. And they can be hindered, again, by the very organizations that actually are trying to address the problem of rightlessness. So it is a place where we see significant constraints on all of these three activities, labor, work, and action, that are crucial, according to Arendt, if we uh, take her seriously, for being recognized as human, uh, as a human being entitled to rights. So without uh, basically uh, being able to engage in these activities, without being able to inhabit this kind of a world, with others who could recognize you as human, um, it becomes very, very difficult to be seen as a subject, as a rights-bearing subject. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem with the camp.
0: Thank you. Um, now, I, of course, would be remiss in, you know, if I didn't kind of follow your own lead in this book, because, you know, as you pointed out from the beginning, that um, Arndt's not just interested in critiquing human rights or rights, but also in rethinking them. Um, So maybe spend kind of the last of our time on on chapter five and on the conclusion um, of the book. And here you turn to R.N.'s provocative move, and as you said, something that's been written about a great deal, um, her idea of of a right to have rights. And I'm specifically, I'm most interested here in the way you talk about it, um, not as something that is based in a kind of normatively grounded or in some kind of justificatory framework, but instead. Grounded or we might not call it groundedness actually um, in what you call on page 165 political practices of founding human rights. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could talk about the the importance of that of that of that idea political practices of founding mm-hmm. human rights.
1: So th- that's a very important question for that chapter. Um, it is at the heart of that chapter in the sense that most of the time, The scholarly debate on human rights, especially in political theory and political Mm -hmm. philosophy, because human rights are now studied by so many uh, people in different fields, but in political theory and political philosophy, we have a tendency to focus on the question of foundations or justifications. What are the universal foundations Mm -hmm. or justifications of human rights? Is it uh, dignity? Is it autonomy? Is it reason? Or is it something else that we haven't come up with yet? But how could we basically provide universal justification? And uh, that is an important question, and it has uh, uh, basically been answered uh, by drawing on a wide range of um, you know, theoretical frameworks, including, the, uh, basically, uh, for instance, uh, the Habermasian framework. Mm-hmm. And when uh, scholars turn to Hannah Arendt, uh, she uh, stri- she strikes these scholars as a somewhat frustrating figure mm. when it comes to that question, precisely because when we look at the origins of totalitarianism, she formulates this, you know, a very uh, provocative and thought-provoking and really interesting phrase: "the right to have rights." It's a very powerful phrase, mm. and uh, she says that's ha- uh, this, in the face of the rightlessness of the stateless. This is, how human, this is how we should uh, rethink uh, human rights or uh, this is the one right that we become aware of, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, for many scholars, she doesn't actually provide a universal justification or foundation right. for the claim that she's making. And I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> if, you are, if our main question is finding a universal foundation for human rights, Hannah Arendt is not the thinker to turn to. She does something more interesting, uh, I think. She changes the question uh, that we pose about human rights. It's not what is the universal justification, but how could we guarantee these rights? Mm -hmm. What are the political guarantees for these rights? Um, And uh, so in the case of um, her proposal for proposition of a, of the right to have rights, she suggests that this right basically uh, supersedes the current uh, international framework, which still works uh, in terms of agreements between states. Uh, It uh, is a right that could only guarantee by humanity, which has become an inescapable fact, and we might read that as one of the, uh, as a statement that maybe, you know, signals to some of the uh, developments that we discussed in the context of globalization, mm-hmm. but she also has this very pessimistic note. She basically says it's by no means certain whether that's even possible. Right. So uh, what I, I, I ended up doing in that chapter is to read her own pro- her proposition of the right to have rights as a declaration. Arendt declares a new right. Um, and this is a, a point uh, that I make with the help of Judith Butler, mm-hmm. who reads that section in a very thought-provoking way as a declaration arranged shifts to a declarative mode, mm-hmm. she says. And, uh, and I like that suggestion a lot precisely because it also shows that there is an, an abyss or mm-hmm. groundlessness. Um, uh, that attends any new rights claim, right? So uh, we can perhaps see, you know, the uh, uh, you know what many scholars find really uh, frustrating—the mm-hmm. groundlessness of mm-hmm. Arendt's right to have rights—might actually be revealing a feature of new rights claims, right? And these new rights claims, I try to understand. Um, as political practices of founding human rights, founding and refounding in the sense that, uh, they introduce us, they introduce us to new rights. They, uh, are, uh, founding in that sense, or they extend existing rights in very new directions, mm-hmm. or they introduce us to new subjects of rights or all at once. Right. It can be all Which at once. Which seems
0: to another kind of important aspect of, um, the reading Arendt's Right to Have rights as a Declaration, and that it connects um, thinkers and practitioners and activists to ongoing political struggles.
1: Exactly. So that was one of the ideas. Um, it's not that when we ask the question of the universal justification or foundation of human rights, we completely neglect those struggles, but perhaps our focus shifts mm-hmm. away from those struggles mm-hmm. at times when we are uh, asking that question. Um, and it turns us our attention to those struggles, especially those moments when we are basically seeing these kinds of subjects who claim these rights that they are not entitled to claim yet. So, one of the things that we saw in uh, the mobilizations of undocumented immigrants in Europe, in North America, in various other contexts, is precisely uh, this practice of political founding mm-hmm. uh, in human rights. Right? They are making these claims that do not seem to have any uh, grounding uh, in the sense that its it doesn't have an already existing justification given by the legal or normative frameworks that exist in the international realm, uh, but they are also, these actors, as they are making these claims, they are also striving to uh, legitimize those claims in different ways. So, If we can speak of grounds in human rights, uh, 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 they are political grounds. Mm -hmm. They are political grounds that are very much dependent on these kinds of actions that are undertaken by those who are not even supposed to be visible in the public realm. So that's uh, the important idea, uh, I think, uh, that we sometimes... Uh, forget as we focus too much on the question of universal foundation. Human rights owe their origins and ongoing innovation to these kinds of acts that uh, bring to view uh, new subjects of rights.
0: Right. Thank you. Now, before we close, I was wondering. I mean, there's there's a lot more in this book um, that we could have talked about. Um, but I was wondering if there's anything you'd kind of especially like to highlight for the listeners that you and I didn't get a chance to discuss.
1: Uh, we probably uh, addressed many of these truths. One thing that I want to say, I couldn't, I, I, I should have probably said it when I was talking about rightlessness. Um, one of the things I emphasize in the book is that basically it's not that, you know, we can just apply our rent mm-hmm. to contemporary problems. Not only in the sense that, as we have talked about, there are so many perplexities in Arendt's right. political theory that give rise to different interpretations, but also because there have been so many important changes in uh, the field of human rights since the time she wrote her analysis. And we have seen an increasing institutionalization of human rights since that time. And one of the most important things that has happened is the recognition of uh, personhood, right? The recognition um, of everyone as a person before the law is something that is important. So for me, uh, one of the challenges in this book was basically, how do we understand rightlessness? Given that we have seen, actually, uh, these transformations. Um, uh, She was talking about the loss of legal personhood in the case of statelessness. Um, So what I... Ended up uh, doing as I talked about it is basically take into account these developments, and then we understand rightlessness not the loss of legal personhood altogether, Mm -hmm. but very precarious personhood, uh, which basically gives access to a very narrow set of rights with very fragile guarantees. And this becomes clear, especially in the case of detention and deportation. And just to give one example to illustrate that in the context of uh, detention, for example, immigration detention is very different from uh, detention for criminal purposes Um, and uh, in the European Union, which is often taken as uh, a very promising site for human rights, though probably uh, now uh, people are changing those views. (laughs) But uh, that detention can be, the immigration detention can be up to 18 months, according to uh, the directives, the EU directives. That would have been unimaginable in the case of uh, citizen's uh, detained, uh, uh, for criminal reasons. Um, and, I think, uh, that shows the precarious, uh, legal, political, and human standing of asylum seekers and undocumented immigrants. And that's precisely what I tried to mean by rightlessness, this kind of precarious, legal, political, and human standing.
0: Right. Um, I mean, I was also wondering if you kind of wanted to take a chance to talk, you've brought up a couple of different points, um, but in any kind of any more depth, how you're thinking about um, the work that you've done here and the contemporary kind of both political or maybe anti-political practices and then the discourses surrounding refugees in Europe and the possibility of, um, of bringing more, allowing more refugees in into America as well, kind of how you're thinking about the current, very current mm-hmm. situation um, after you finished writing the book.
1: The very current crisis is uh, really interesting. I mean, in the the book, I was talking about uh, basically uh, the need to conduct a critical inquiry into the underlying assumptions of human rights. So if we are going to understand the problems faced by uh, these migrants, we can't basically simply say it's an implementation problem. Only if we had the right institutions Mm -hmm. uh, in place, then we would be able to implement uh, these norms better. So there are tensions within these human rights norms themselves that we should understand in order to understand the systemic problem. Um, So what we are seeing right now is a more disturbing problem, perhaps, in some respects, in the sense that... um, we have seen uh, the deal that the European Union, for example, signed uh, with Turkey mm-hmm. is in breach of uh, actually uh, the Refugee Convention. Mm-hmm. It effectively eliminates the right to asylum. Uh, these people will not even be given the opportunity to make an asylum claim and they will be automatically sent to camps in And uh, so when I was talking about rightlessness, I was basically speaking of less visible forms of violence that we might not be able to see if we focus only on rights violations and, right, uh, and most of the time, you know, especially states who um, want to maintain a liberal democratic mm-hmm. image. They want to, at least on paper, look as if they are abiding by these human rights norms. but what we are seeing um, both in discourse and practice is actually the questioning of those conventions themselves, including the right to asylum very, very openly and not uh, you know in a hidden manner anymore, which is very, very troubling.
0: Right. Um, and so to close, I'll ask, perhaps it's the traditional closing question here on the podcast, and that is um, what are you working on now?
1: I am currently actually working on, uh, beginning to work on, uh, a new project on personhood, uh, which is uh, related to one of the issues that I uh, mentioned earlier, and it is discussed at length in uh, the third chapter of the book. Um, With the rise of the human rights discourse, um, every human being has come to be recognized as a person before the law. And we have this interesting notion, um, this term, this phrase, the human person. For instance, ICCPR speaks of the inherent dignity of the human persons. The rights are derived from the inherent dignity of the human person. So that phrase is interesting precisely because for most of history, actually, uh, not every human being was recognized as a person. And it is also an interesting phrase because it makes us think that right now every human being is recognized as a person. So I'm interested in actually this gap between the human Mm -hmm. and the person, uh, both historically as well as how what we thought to be the past, right? These specters of non-persons or semi-persons might be actually inhabiting our uh, contemporary uh, uh, world um so migrants, um, especially undocumented immigrants migrants in an irregular situation um, are a, a very good example of that in many respects um but um, I think I would like to think about it a lot uh, think about this problem uh, by taking into account some of the other figures that have, that have been so crucial, to uh, the ongoing definition of the person, uh, whether that's the slave or uh, the criminal mm-hmm. or the animal, mm-hmm. and how, you know, uh, our uh, definition of the rights-bearing subject is continuously defined. In uh, And I'm, again, interested in those figures that are rendered <laughs> rightless uh, in this process, who see uh, the, uh, those figures that are, depersonalize in this process
0: all right i thank you so much for joining us on the podcast it was a real treat to get to both read the book and now talk to you about it
1: thank you very much john i really enjoyed our conversation thank you